Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Ceasefire storm. International opinion about Israel's attacks on Gaza appears to be shifting, and that includes its closest ally, the United States. A former peace negotiator tells us how Israel may respond to that new pressure. Good COP28, bad COP28. Some people are hailing today's international climate agreement as a breakthrough. But one activist who was in Dubai says the pact has too many loopholes to bring about desperately needed change. Telling tales out of school, she is doing everything she can to support families whose children are not in class. But our guest doesn't know how much longer her Montreal community centre can deal with the fallout from the Quebec teacher strike. Radio Silence, a new encryption project, will mean you can't listen to the New York Police Department's radio communications anymore. A veteran crime reporter says that's bad news for journalists and the public. Are the people popping the corn making political concessions? There's been a lineup all week outside a packed movie house in Warsaw to watch the gripping real-world drama unfolding in Poland's parliament. And stranding some strands. For some not entirely convincing reasons, a Texas company is preparing to send the hair of three dead U.S. presidents to space, where just like on Earth, they all disappear into the vacuum. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that doesn't like the locks of this. It appears the love affair between Bibi and Biden may be souring. Yesterday during a private fundraiser in Washington, U.S. President Joe Biden warned that Israel's president is starting to lose international support because of the indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. He went on to say that Israel and President Benjamin Netanyahu still have his full support, but it's the harshest public criticism yet from Israel's most powerful ally. And it came as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand broke with Israel and voted in favor of a non-binding UN resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. Aaron David Miller is a former U.S. negotiator on the Oslo Accords and current senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Aaron, why do you think the shift in language from U.S. President Biden but others, why is that happening now? You know, I think the president initially on October 10th, in which he gave one of the most powerful and emotional spe- uh, speeches of his presidency, and he sent a clear and unmistakable signal that he was prepared to give the Israelis the time, the space, and the support they needed to deal with Hamas in the aftermath of the terror surge of October 7th. But I think the frame has evolved clearly in response to the exponential rise of Palestinian deaths and the humanitarian catastrophe. Let's call it what it is. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. 1.8, 1.9 million displaced. Uh, he sent what I would describe as a blinking yellow light when it comes to uh, differences between uh, the president and the Israeli prime minister, not just over the tactics of the war, but in response to uh, the day after. Uh, the question is, will that uh, blinking yellow turn red? And if it does turn red, what will it actually mean? Words are important, but deeds matter more. Do you, do you think Benjamin Netanyahu will, will heed that warning, whatever color the light is? I don't, uh, because I think he's already launched his re-election campaign. And part of the campaign is capitalizing on the fear and the trauma uh, of a nation that's still reeling from the trauma of October 7 and the hostages that were taken. He plans to run, I suspect, if the pressure increases. And I'm far from persuaded, by the way, it will increase. But if the pressure increases, I think he's prepared to run uh, as the candidate who can resist the Americans who want the Palestinian Authority, which is weak, to return to Gaza. They're too weak to fight Hamas. Hamas will return and more terror will be the result. So I guess the real question, Neil, is time. That's the key question. The administration 
Yitzhak's clock is thinking weeks to wrap up the most kinetic phase of Israel's military campaign. The Israeli military's clock is thinking in terms of months. That's the real key. I see January as, I won't describe it as a moment of truth, but I see January as a very important point at which uh, American leverage and Israeli responsiveness is going to be tested. And more lives will be lost in the meantime. In the interim, because, yes, I mean, sad and tragic as it may be, the problem is that the uh, dynamic is the battlefield dynamic. And you have two combatants which have mutually irreconcilable objectives. So how do you rate then the effectiveness or power at this stage of what Canada has done, New Zealand and Australia, you know, voting um, in favor of the non-binding resolution at the, at the UN for a humanitarian ceasefire. How do you rate the power of that very, move now? Very, uh, I think it's uh, it's consequential in the sense that it reflects uh, the erosion of, inter- of Israel's international legitimacy. It reflects uh, the isolation of both the Israelis and the Americans at this stage. But I don't think it can have binding or, or not binding, even if it were a Chapter 7 resolution by the Security Council. I think that in view of October 7, the Israelis are prepared to go to extreme lengths to try to accomplish their military goal. I, I, I think it's really grim, and I'm very sober. I just don't mm-hmm. see a way out. What do you think Israel's response will be to that kind of isolation? You know, I think that the, uh, the, the uh, Britain abstained in the, in the last Security Council resolution. The U.S. vetoed it. I suspect that the Israelis will still make a, a significant pit pitch to the, to the Europeans, to the French, the British, uh, the Germans, um, to see if they can't f- uh, figure out a, a, a way to continue to maintain their support. The key issue is, is the United States, because without um, American munitions, uh, without military resupply, without the political support that the United States has given the Israelis, it seems to me it's ex- it would be extremely difficult for the Israelis to to operate in open defiance of the Biden administration. It's hard to imagine uh, an open break. In the, um, on, the, on the military um, aid or offerings from the, the United States and the kind of line the U.S. and, and President Biden in particular uh, is walking, just to, to bring our listeners up to speed, over the weekend, the U.S. State Department bypassed Congress, authorizing the sale of thousands of tanks, shells to Israel. Axios, as you, as you may have seen, Aaron, is reporting today, though, that the U.S., announced it is again delaying the sale of tens of thousands of U.S.-made rifles to Israel because of the the violence against Palestinians by Jewish settlers in the occupied West Bank. What does that signal to you about what the U.S. president might say or do next? It's, a, it's an important um, um, act for the U.S. to take because th- those weapons, uh, despite the assurances from several Israeli government ministers, could be handed out to any number of groups or individuals, particularly West Bank settlers, uh, who have been uh, intimidated and terrorizing Palestinians over the last couple of months. I, I, I do believe that's a, I won't say it's virtue signaling, but it's a far cry from attaching conditions to, uh, on, to the sale of uh, or the delivery of American military equipment. It's a far cry from delaying, slow walking, or even preventing uh, the shipment of munitions, which the Israelis really do need to carry in this uh, campaign. I'm, based on my own experience, half a dozen administrations, Republicans and Democrats, uh, for over 25 years, I just don't see, unless the Israelis literally, uh, in the face of American persuasion and pressure, basically say, we don't care. October 7 gives us the right to self-defense. We're going to continue with our military activities we could give a damn about humanitarian assistance, time or space to deliver it, uh, and we'll do our best to minimize Palestinian casualty, but we're going to continue with the intensity of our ground, ground campaign. If they were to, to do that, I think the administrations would, administration would be brought to, to either refuse to ship munitions or and or abstain or vote for a UN Security Council resolution. But even that, under these circumstances, I don't think it's going to come to that, Neil. I really don't. Uh, I think the Israelis, by January, you're going to see a shift in Israeli tactics. That is not going to solve the problem. But it should at least stop the large number of Palestinians who are dying as a consequence of Israeli airstrikes and artillery strikes. Aaron, I appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful show. Thank you. Aaron David Miller is a former U.S. negotiator on the Oslo Accords. He's in Washington. This is the sound of New York Police radio communications. Response 5, I need you to respond to a 34 with a nice 2131 prospect, 2131 prospect, 181182 Street. Uh, it's coming over as a mouse dad. For decades now, anyone has been able to listen in, including generations of local news reporters. But since July, precinct by precinct, New York cops have been encrypting their radio communications. By this time next year, they will have shut down all outside access at a cost of $390 million U.S. They say the aim is to block criminals from knowing what the police are doing and to protect victims' privacy. Todd Maisel is a veteran crime reporter with 40 years of experience monitoring police radio communications and a contributing editor at AM New York. He's also the founder of the anti-encryption advocacy group, the New York Media Consortium. We reached him in Beckett, Massachusetts. Todd, what do you think New Yorkers will lose if this encryption strategy goes ahead? New Yorkers will lose breaking news in the city. They will no longer know when something directly affecting them in their community is going on because it will be up to the police department to tell them what to tell us. And most of the time, the police department doesn't tell us for hours, if not days. And if the police department doesn't want the press to know what's going on, they will be able to just not tell us. You've heard a lot of these calls. Is there one, though, that stands out to you, a memory about how critical it was in your view that you heard those radio communications? Well, the one that always stands out to me was uh, Hurricane Sandy. If I wasn't able to monitor police radio and know what was going on in the communities, I couldn't have told people what was happening. Even before the high tide came in, I was telling people that there's 20, 30-foot waves coming over the top of Belt Parkway and that they need to move to higher ground. If I didn't hear the radio, it would have been very dangerous for me. My car would have been ending up underwater, and I may have been with it. Mayor Eric Adams has weighed in on this, as I'm sure you've heard. He said, quote, we can't give a leg up to these bad guys, unquote. He's, he's saying that, that this encryption, encrypting police communications, will prevent criminals from using this information to their advantage. What do you make of his comments? Well, they must be calling us criminals. I'd like them to tell me what criminal instance they are talking about. Are they calling the press criminals? Because I'm not doing anything to interfere with them. I'm not doing anything to cause them harm. I'm not co- and I'm not committing crimes using the radio. What do you think this says about where things are at in terms of the relationship between law enforcement, police, and, and journalists? There's always there's always been friction, certainly. Uh, but where do things stand right now in your city? I think this is the worst time ever in the history of New York City, that the, the, the New York City government is at war with the press. Uh, just today, the press was kicked out of Police Plaza. Why? The first time in, in over 30 years that they've been there, they were kicked out. Why? Because, well, the NYPD says, oh, we needed the space. Uh, I, I guess they needed the extra closet space to hang their coats because that's a small, small area we're talking about in Police Plaza. Um, they gave them a trailer outside. Yeah, thanks a lot. So they're going to restrict and, uh, and, and, stop and hurt their ability to go in and out of Police Plaza where they get their information. But it goes much further. They've been cracking down on the press in a whole lot of ways, uh, including ticketing, idling TV trucks. They've been ticketing us parked at assignments. They took away almost every city hall parking area for press. 
when the mayor is having his press conference. His people are out there giving tickets. Why do you think it's getting worse now? What changed? I think you've got a mayor who, uh, for whatever reason, has thin skin, doesn't uh, like the reporting that's going on, would rather fight with us than make us partners. And, And that's a shame because I know the mayor a long, long time, and he was never like this. We had a very good relationship when he was borough president, and I didn't know him to be like this. I just don't understand. I just don't understand why the mayor is not talking to us about this, why he uh, is giving excuses about why we shouldn't be listening, calling us the criminals. Is that what you're telling me? A state senator from Queens, Michael Gennaris, uh, introduced legislation that would, would call for credentialed media to be able to hear police radios in real time as things are unfolding, and then there would be a 10-minute delay for the general public. Is that the kind of compromise that would work for you and your colleagues? I think the legislation is excellent. It gives the press the access that they should have, credentialed press, that is, okay? We're we're making a big distinction. And as for the public, a 10-minute delay gives plenty of time, plenty of time, and it stops... uh, people from being able to use transmissions against the police. It's already 10 minutes later. It's useless to a criminal. It's useless to a burglar. It's useless to any of them. What kind of reception is that proposed legislation getting from from police departments in New York? I will tell you that Nassau County currently is uh, completely dark. It's been dark for a while. They will oppose this. Why? Because they simply don't want us listening. They want to control the narrative 100%. I would say that other departments, the Sheriff's Association might come down against it. They will say, well, we don't want anyone listening to our private conversations. And I will counter that by saying that they are public servants. They are paid by us. We should be able to hear. What do you think the chances are of that legislation we we talked about going through? I'd say... uh, It's 50-50. I'd like to know which legislators are opposing it. And we're going to ask them, do you want to fight with the media? What's going to happen at your next press conference? Is this what you want? You're going to keep doing your work even if the encryption goes through, it sounds like. They are going to be hearing from me and the New York Media Consortium for a long time to come. I think it's a big mistake on their part, and they should think about it. Todd, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. You're very welcome. Todd Mazel is a contributing editor at AM New York and the founder of the New York Media Consortium. He's in Beckett, Massachusetts. There's a super popular show packing them in at a movie theater in Warsaw this week. People have been lining up outside a downtown cinema to watch the proceedings of Parliament. There's huge interest in politics in Poland right now. There was a massive turnout in the recent election, a vote that saw the defeat of the ruling Law and Justice Party, and a massive turnout this week at the Kinoteca Multiplex, where people gathered to watch the change of power to Prime Minister Donald Tusk. Maria Majszek is the manager of the theater. We reached her in Warsaw. Maria, what was the moment? What what made you decide to turn on the live feed from the same, from your country's legislature, and and invite everybody in? Well, there was this um, guy on Instagram. His name is Michal Marshall, and people started, like, uh, commenting on his post that what is happening in the parliament is so funny. They could watch it on a big screen, and we just responded. What was so funny about it? What was drawing people in so much? Because, you know, there are political channels right around the world that, that take people inside their, their legislatures and yeah. people people don't, don't do what you guys have done. Yeah, well, I think it's because for eight years we have been stuck with uh, the peace party, so the law and justice. And it seemed for eight years that there was nothing we could do to change the situation. But now we had the elections Mm -hmm. and peace 
won with votes, but they didn't actually have the majority in the parliament. So we knew that this game was over and like their game was over. So we knew that now it's just a matter of time that they finally move out. So I think the the funny part was watching how they refused to admit that they were defeated and that they had to give up their right to rule Poland. <laughs> I think the their fight for like staying in power was ridiculous. Are you at the theater right now? I am. I am. What's always you're always there? Yeah, I'm sure over the last little while, especially as as all these folks come in. What's the atmosphere been like? Well, on Monday it was it was great. Like people started showing up at 9 a.m. The transmission started at 10 a.m. So just before 10 a.m. we were flooded with media and with people who wanted like to come and see it on the big screen. Everyone was very ecstatic and. People were just happy. They were talking. They were like getting to know each other. They were buying popcorn, drinks, and they just like sat down and we put it on and the show began, you know? And people were crying, laughing, smiling, clapping. It was just like the atmosphere in the, in the screen was amazing. And you could tell that the joy was great. Like oh. people could sense that the change is coming. They were hungry for that change. And and connection, it sounds yeah. like, too. Connection with other people. Yeah, because I feel like everyone here was for the same reason and supporting this, like, the the same side, the democracy, you know, and, mm-hmm. like, the, the liberty of the people. I think that this event, like, what we have done here at Kinoteca, it will go into history books, you know, because mm-hmm. it never happened before anywhere in the world that there would be so much interest about watching the parliamentary debate in, on the big screen, you know, like it, usually what you associate it with is like boring, long conversations. For us here, it was just full of very good speeches from some politicians and the sense of like belonging and the sense of community that you could feel here. It was, it was just great to watch on the big screen and people would just sit together. They would exchange their views. It was, it was great. How many people came? I think throughout the whole day, it was over 600. Obviously, we're coming and going because it lasted for 10 hours. So not everyone could stay the whole day, obviously, in the cinema, but many did. How long do you think you'll you'll keep this going? Well, at first, it, like I said, it started as a joke and mm-hmm. we didn't think it was going to get so much attention for this. But uh, as soon as we realized that this is what the Polish people, that, that the people from Warsaw, what they want, but not only from Warsaw, because we actually had some people coming over 200 kilometers to watch this on the big screen. So this is amazing. And we, when we realized that the interest was so large, we decided like to make a bigger thing out of this. So we created this educational project that we promised to screen the debates until the 10th of January at first. But if we see that there is a continuous interest, we will pro- prolong this as well. And, and are you so charging the, Are charging for this? Is it like a normal no, movie ticket? No, it's completely for free. Oh. No, no, it's for free. We feel like we should take part in like um, making the, the access to democracy more available to everyone. This, those are the views that we want to promote. You clearly love the cinema and the big screen, you know the power of that big screen. What has it been like for you personally to watch this change of power, political power in your country? Well, it brings a lot of hope and joy for the future. At some points throughout the last eight years, we were hopeless. We were protesting. We stood hours in the rain trying to just fight for our decency and basic human rights for example, with the abortion, but also with the courts and the media. And it was just tragic, you know, but now it seems that a lot of things can change. And like the elections show that the young people are getting more and more interested in this. And some of the people that have now became the the ministers, they seem like good people in the good place. So yeah, I hope I hope that this country will change a little bit and we will get back some of the things they took Maria, I'm very glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day.
Maria Myshek is the manager of the Kinoteca Multiplex in Warsaw. Since the dawn of time, humanity's hair has longed to explore the vast reaches of outer space. Some scientists believe this is why our hair is on the top of our heads. Which scientists? I don't know. I forget their names. I want to say Einstein was one of them, though. So earlier this year, we were thrilled to learn that some hair would be going where all hair has always yearned to be sent. A Texas company called Celestis announced it would be launching the hair of George Washington, Dwight Eisenhower, and John F. Kennedy into space. I mean, it it just makes sense. After all, President Kennedy's expanded NASA to the point where it could put astronauts on the moon. President Eisenhower created NASA, and President Washington famously said, I wish my hair could go to space. But maybe you're still dubious about the value of sending three presidents' hair to float around in the cosmos. Fine, Celestis will tell you that the DNA in the presidential tresses will help future space settlements understand American history. Or perhaps it will be found by aliens who will marvel at humanity's ingenuity. Or maybe just go, ooh, is this hair? And marvel at humanity's grossness. Either way, they'll understand something essential about humanity. The hair launch has just been delayed to the start of 2024 due to some glitches, but those three presidents never backed down from a challenge. So neither should the company bravely firing their locks into the great unknown. Send the hair up ASAP, because when the going gets tough, the tufts get going. Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. The COP28 agreement is here, and it's the first agreement of its kind to call openly for countries to wean themselves off fossil fuels. That milestone follows all-night negotiations over a draft agreement that was widely panned for doing too little to address the threat of climate change. But our guest says the new resolution still falls short. Assad Rayman is the executive director of War on Want and a climate activist who was at the summit in Dubai. That's where we reached him. Assad, as you know, many... Uh, many who are there, others who are watching, see this as a significant turning point in the fight against climate change. You don't see it that way. Why? No, I don't. I mean, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, a mention of the transition away from fossil fuels would have been uh, seen as a as a signal of the end of the era of fossil fuels. But the reality of the text is something very different. Rich developed countries, including Canada, U.S., the European Union, UK, pushed for uh, gas to be uh, a transition fuel. So rather than listen to the science, which says there can be no more new expansion of any fossil fuels, of oil, gas, Mm -hmm. all coal, we're going to see a massive expansion of gas. We have heard from the Alliance of Small Island States, uh, as you have likely as well. They see, quote, a litany of loopholes end quote, in, in this agreement. Uh, Al Gore ha- has, has spoken out about the concern about those loopholes as well. Which loopholes in particular concern you most? Well, I think there's a whole series of loopholes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the biggest one is banking on risky technology, unproven technologies that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But also the, the, the push for new nuclear and, and and technologies that really shouldn't be part of the transition to clean, renewable uh, energy and affordable energy to people. 
They also, uh, delegates approved a climate disaster loss and damage fund. It was first tabled in Egypt last year at, at the summit. But the pledges do fall short of, of the $400 billion or so in damage caused by climate change each year. That number will change, certainly. What do you think it's going to take for, for countries to shift on that front? Well, first of all, I think we should recognize what a huge achievement that fund is, the fact that it's even where it is. And this has been because of the combined pressure of climate justice groups all over the world who've been actually campaigning for this for nearly 30 years now. And, uh, and of course, the commitment of many developing countries, many of them who are overwhelmed by cl- these kind of climate disasters and loss of damage. I'm originally from Pakistan. Once flooded in Pakistan caused damages of $35 billion. And so it's really important that we have to have this loss and damage fund. There is still a long way to go. As you've rightly pointed out, what has been given is a drop in the ocean. You know, United States pledged millions and then the very next day, announced that it was giving billions in arms and weapons to Israel and Ukraine. So I think the scale of what is needed is is, is far away, but it does give us a beginning and uh, we'll continue to push on that. When we talk about the language around fossil fuels transitioning away from uh, was what they landed on. As you know, OPEC was urging its members to reject any agreement that targeted fossil fuels rather than using the language of, of emissions. So Do you see some positivity there, given the pressures, the external pressures? It's not just OPEC. I mean, all of the rich countries, uh, none of them are serious about transitioning away from fossil fuels. And as we just mentioned, there are so many uh, loopholes in it that you could drive an oil tanker through it. So um, I think we should recognize that there's a symbolic value but science doesn't care about symbolic values. What it cares about is how much pollution is being put into the atmosphere. Of course, only need to look all around the world, and including in Canada, and see what the effects of just a, a, a one-degree warming has done to devastate people's lives, to destroy our ecosystems, and threaten the very future of humanity. In a statement, Canada's Environment Minister Stephen Gilbo said, and this is just part of it, quote, the package is not perfect, no UN text is, but as someone who's been in this space for almost 30 years, I see a vision we can rally around to keep 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach and to protect people and ecosystems. And he goes on from there. I, I, I'm thinking about your, your op-ed in the, in the Guardian uh, and the headline. Um, you know, you, you say that they want us to rally around this, but you see that that, that the promise of this, this agreement uh, as a lie. Those are, those are strong statements. Do you see, though, the need for positivity to make sure that countries, but also people around the world, see that there is some change and some hope? Absolutely. But that change and that hope is coming from ordinary people. It's coming from movements. It's coming from indigenous movements. And it's coming from people who are saying, you know, how is it that the fossil fuel companies are earning billions in profit each and every year, and yet ordinary people struggle to pay energy bills? Why do we have half the world still without access to electricity and clean cooking? And the problem is, in the climate negotiations, many of these countries make promises but then break them. So I think we should be realistic and honest with ourselves just so that we recognize the scale of the problem. But that's not about being despondent. It's just about knowing what we're fighting against and recognizing that in this, the change will only come when we as ordinary people make sure our politicians act in our interests and not those of fossil fuel industry. There are people uh, around the world, ordinary people, uh, as you put it, including here in Canada, who work for fossil fuel companies and and say they're feeling anxious about the phase-out and what it might mean for their livelihoods. What do you say to them? Uh, absolutely. Look, you know, uh, uh, the, there is a question. Change is now inevitable. The only question is what kind of change and who pays the price. Will it be ordinary people? Will it be ordinary workers? Will people and communities be thrown onto the scrap heap? That doesn't have to be the case. We can actually have a just transition. So absolutely, the transition has to have workers at the centre and particularly workers in the fossil fuel industry. You mentioned symbolic victories. After after being at this summit and, and doing the work you've done for some time now, do you think that symbolic victories are all we can we can expect from a summit like this? No, absolutely not. Look, the, the, the climate crisis is a global problem. And for a global problem, you need 
uh, global solutions. You need countries to come together and to do it fairly because that's the key. I will only do what I need to do if I know that other countries are doing their fair share. That can only be realised at the global level. And that's why the UN talks continue to be really, really important. Asad, I appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Asad Rehman is the executive director of War on Want. He was at the COP28 summit in Dubai this week. That's where we reached him. The president of the union representing some 65,000 Quebec educators says negotiations with the province over an ongoing teacher strike are, quote, no longer encouraging, unquote. Melanie Hubert made the remarks in a video published late last night after Premier Francois Legault signaled that he was hopeful students would be back in class on Monday. That disconnect is unwelcome news for parents and for those struggling to support them in the face of a prolonged labor dispute. Christine Richardson is the director of Jeunesse Loyola, a community organization that ordinarily offers after-school care for kids between the ages of 4 and 17 in Montreal. But these days, it's doing a lot more than that. We reached Ms. Richardson in Montreal. Christine, how have things changed for you and your team since this strike started? Uh, So we usually open at 3 p.m., but since the beginning of the strike, we have been open all day, every day, basically. Uh, And instead of the 30 to 35 kids who kind of come on a rotating basis uh, after school, uh, we have about 50 a day. You're also feeding children. Yes. Uh, So, which is, you know, something that we always do but you know while they're with us uh and so now they're with us for triple the amount of time uh so instead of hearty after school snacks and supper as needed it's now breakfast lunch sometimes supper and snacks in between do you have the resources and the staff to deal with all of that Uh, not really but we're making it work. Uh, our team has been our team has been incredible, honestly. You know, we've had volunteers uh, come in, you know, people from our teen programs and and some of our you know sort of former participants uh, who've come to lend a hand. We've had residents in the area sort of, organize fundraisers uh, to help with the cost because it it's costing us about a thousand dollars a day on top of our usual operating budget well given all of that given the logistics you know when was the moment where you all decided okay we need to offer more and stay open all of these hours and, and just do so much more for all of these students was there any hesitation none at all um, and you know I I was kind of expecting a bit of pushback from the team just because, you know, it's, it's a big, it's a big sort of ask, right? And as soon as we mentioned it in our, our weekly meeting that there was going to be this strike coming up, um, and, you know, I was, I was expecting just to sort of have a conversation about, okay, how can we support families during this time? Um, it was, you know, immediate and unanimous. The whole team was like, well, okay, so we'll open. Like, you know, we have to. We're going to figure it out and we'll be here. Um, of course, at that point, you know, we were expecting it to last maybe a week. Uh, we're now in week four. So everybody's everybody's pretty tired right now. You, you sound remarkably uh, upbeat. That says, that says a lot about you, given, given all that you're... <laughs> you're dealing with but there must be difficult moments as well not just with your you know stretched staff uh, and busy times but you can't take every child in you can't help every family right so how do you decide who you uh, can take in honestly it's uh it's an awful feeling um 
to have to turn people away. Uh, we've had to, so, you know, we do sort of in our mandate serve a specific territory. Um, in normal times, we don't really enforce that because, you know, we have the capacity, right? Uh, right now, we've had to, in the first few days, we sort of kept it open to whoever showed up. But since those first few days, we've had to really start enforcing that. Those can't be easy conversations. What 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 do you say? How have those conversations gone? Uh, honestly, it's it's heartbreaking. Um, I've had you know I, I had a a parent in tears the other morning uh, when I was saying like I just you know I I just couldn't um, take their kids and and you know, they, they're frustrated, they're discouraged and scared, right? Like there are real life and, and long-term consequences for, for people, for parents, right? If, if they have to miss work and lose their job, well, that is something that's going to last well beyond mm-hmm. the strikes. So how are you feeling, you know, about the strike overall? Has your perspective shifted, uh, you know, in the debate that, that's ongoing in Quebec right now about it? Um, I think, if anything, it has made me more, like, even more supportive of the teachers and the support staff in schools. Um, you know, we're seeing the support that these kids need, right? We're seeing the level um, of support that so many of these kids get in schools or should be getting in schools, um, but aren't or risk losing. And I think, you know, this this experience has been a good reminder of that, of, of just how necessary it is. How long can you keep going at the pace and scale that you're operating at? Uh, well, right now uh, on Wednesday, I think we're Wednesday. We're Wednesday. It is. Yes. Um, we're we're trying to figure out if we can open next week. You know, we're now looking at what programs we're going to have to cut in the new year to cover the expenses that we're incurring now. Well, Christine, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. Christine Richardson is the director of Jeunesse Loyola, a youth organization in Montreal. That's where we reached her. John Gould wasn't looking for mosquitoes that seek out frog nostrils, but that's what he believes he's found. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Newcastle in Australia. We reached him in Newcastle. John, when you're talking to people who are not scientists, the people in your life, family and friends, how how are they reacting when you tell them you are kind of obsessed with frog nostrils right now? Yes, um, I think the first the first reaction is just to kind of give you a weird little look, and then they go, "Oh, yes, that's that's very interesting." <laughs> yeah, we're definitely curious and interested to hear all about it. So you were out there taking photographs of the green and golden bell frog, and then you laid out the pictures and noticed something was unusual. So what exactly did you see in those photographs? Um, surprisingly, I've been taking these photos for quite a few years now, and I didn't really notice the peculiarity of the mosquitoes uh, using the nostrils. So I was actually taking the photos because a few years earlier, we kind of had the idea that mosquitoes might be a vector of a fungus that's killing off a lot of frogs worldwide. Mm-hmm. So we thought it could be a vector of this chytrid fungus. So I was taking photos almost just for my own uh, interest, really. But then after a few years of collecting and compiling these photos, um, I just thought one day I should just look through all of them and, you know, get them together side by side. That's when I noticed the 
the fact that they were all just using the exact same location on the frog for, for feeding. Why do you think mosquitoes are landing there? That's a very good question. Um, at first thought, you would think that a frog would be the worst uh, place to land because frogs love to eat mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we did we did make another observation that some of the mosquitoes first initially landed on the backs of the frogs. So we have an idea that they might avoid being eaten by the frogs by landing away from the head and then walking up um, to the nostrils to, to feed. And why the nostril? Really simply, it's probably um, thinner skin mm. and a better blood supply. So it makes for a really easy meal for the mosquito. Is this a specific type of mosquito or different kinds you're noticing? So my expertise is in frogs. So I did uh, call out to a few uh, mosquito experts in Australia, mm. and they identified it as being a particular native Australian species. And I won't say the entire Latin species name because I'll, I'll butcher it, but it's um, M. elegans. Mm -hmm. It's a generalist feeder, so it feeds on amphibians, but a lot of other animal types such as um, birds and, and mammals, mm. um, which makes the observation a bit more interesting because for such a generalist feeder, it seems to have such a specialized behavior when choosing amphibians as a blood host. Yeah, it's interesting you said, I, I know you said if they start at the back and then move to the nostril, that seems to keep them the bit safer. But it does seem like very risky behavior, even even, uh, even for them, even <laughs> yes. in that scenario. Because obviously on, on people, when mosquitoes, you know, they, they we don't notice till after the fact most of the time, right? And that's the problem. But it's right there in the photographs. The, the frog must know it's there. So did you did you capture any photographs of them eating them, catching them? What did you see on that front? Well, that's that's the thing. Um, in all of the occasions that we observed, it seems as if the frog didn't realize that it had a mosquito on top of it. So none of them tried to use its hands to, to get the mosquito off. None of them jumped away. They were actually quite happy just sitting idly while these mosquitoes were, were feeding on them. So it might be that the area between the eyes is a bit of a, a blind spot for the frogs mm -hmm. because the frogs have a bit of an eyelid. So they might not be able to really see that the mosquito is present there. Interesting. This is, we should mention this is not a full study you've published so far in the journal. It's an observation at this point. So, you know, what's your feeling on whether this is, this is just a fluke you've observed in these photographs? Well, I guess um, with a lot of natural history observations, it's usually just one observation mm -hmm. and then you, you might publish that. But this is something that we observed a dozen or more, or more times across a three-year period. And in every single photo that we, we obtained, um, it was a mosquito feeding on the nostrils. So if you had maybe one or two photos, it could just be random chance. But having 12 or more photos of the mosquito doing the exact same thing, it kind of provides weight to the fact that it's a highly specialized mm -hmm. feeding strategy for the mosquito when using the amphibian host. And is there is there a next step now to 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 investigate things even further? Potentially, it would be really good to see how the interaction between mosquitoes and frogs um, how that affects the potential transfer of ki the chytrid fungus. Now that we know where the mosquito is more likely to land, it might give us a better impression about how the infection spreads along the skin of the frog. So it'd be quite interesting to know um, whether this particular type of mosquito is transferring the chytrid fungus and also how the fungus spreads once the mosquito has landed. We're reaching you very, very early, pre-dawn, I think, right now. Yes, it's about <laughs> it's about 4 a.m. here oh, in well. Australia. It's a great time. <laughs> well, thank you for that. But it's not just for us because you have a bit of an odd sleeping schedule because you're continuing your field work, right? Yes, correct. So I've I've gotten a bit of a, a reputation as being a vampire scientist these days. So <laughs> on brand with the, the blood-sucking mosquitoes, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> you know, very on brand. Uh, that's what I try to do. Um, no, so Australian frogs, most of them are nocturnal. So um, you almost do have to shift your your sleeping habit to to work with frogs. And what do they look like? The particular species I, I study, the green and golden bell frog, they're beautiful species. They're this um, pea green kind of base with these markings of gold, iridescent gold. And for me, they look like they're painted porcelain, so they have that shiny kind of effect to them. So they're quite a quite a beautiful frog. It must be it must be interesting to be out with them at night in the quiet. Uh, there's nothing there's nothing like that. Besides the mosquitoes eating you to shreds, um, 
it's just so relaxing being out in the Australian bush at nighttime under the stars. There's there's no sun. You don't get sunburned. It's not too hot. So it's um, it's the perfect job, really, if you if you like to avoid the sun, at least. <laughs> John, thanks for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. That was Australian ecologist John Gould. His observations about mosquitoes that landed on three different species of frogs' nostrils were recently published in the journal Ethology. We reached him in Newcastle, Australia, much earlier today. This is Jungkook with Standing Next to You from the album Golden, which was released last month, and which it turns out will probably have to sustain his fans for at least the next year and a half. Yesterday, the BTS superstar became one of the last members of the group to report for mandatory military service in South Korea. This week, he and three other members of the K-pop group joined their bandmates who had already enlisted. Military service is mandatory for all South Korean men, with few exceptions, even for absolutely gargantuan international pop stars. Now BTS fans who refer to themselves as the ARMY are starting a countdown to when BTS is out of the actual ARMY. For now, it looks like a reunion show won't be possible until at least 2025. Members of BTS first began reporting for their collective conscription about a year ago. Around then, we spoke with Michelle Cho, a professor of East Asian Studies at the University of Toronto. From our archives, here's an encore of that conversation. Michelle, what are you seeing? What are you hearing out there? How are BTS fans reacting now that they know (laughs) that these young men are going to be going into the army? Yeah. I mean, the response has been a little bit split, I would say. There are some fans who are very, very sad. They had kept their hopes alive until the bitter end to see whether or not the exemption would come through for the group. But then there are also fans who are taking it in stride because this has been the anticipated outcome for a while. And the question of BTS's military service has been a topic of discussion among fans for quite a while. So it's a relief, perhaps, to have a little bit of certainty now. They are such powerful, soft culture uh, exports. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the government ultimately decided that, you know, giving them an exemption was not going to happen? Mm. You know, throughout this process of debate, I think that it was, uh, there were two factors involved in the, the, Full, you know, uh, deliberations. The first was just the the fact that public opinion was very, very split. You know, there are many people in South Korea who think that there should be no exemptions whatsoever because everything should be fair and equitable for every male South Korean citizen. And so any exemption is a sign of favoritism. So there really is this kind of split among the Korean public uh, in Korean public opinion. You know, the scale of uh, BTS's celebrity uh, is why there's so much attention on this. But, of course, there are millions and millions of families who who have sons who will have to perform this mandatory military service. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. what the sentiment is uh, among young people in mm-hmm. South Korea. I mean, I think that there is a kind of split between what people will say privately mm-hmm. versus what they would say publicly or kind of more on the record, um, I think that there's widespread disenchantment and a kind of, um, yeah, frustration with the fact that young men have to put their lives on hold. There's income lost. There's, you know, opportunity lost while they are serving their, um, their civic duty. But then um, on the other hand, there really is this sense that military service is a coming-of-age ritual and that, you know, you really learn a lot in the military and everyone needs to do it. And it's this um, tremendously important part of South Korean identity for young men. Uh, So uh, I think that privately, (laughs) um, young people don't want to go. But at the same time, I think that they want to maintain a certain um, pride in their service 
And so I think it's the same, the same goes for the BTS members that, you know, they have been very stoic and um, pretty patriotic, I guess, in their, in their, the, the few statements they've made about the prospect of serving in the military. They're obviously not the, the first celebrities uh, in Korea who, who've reached the age of military service and have had to perform that. So, you know, what's happened to others who, who've had to go through that? What What is it like for them in the Korean military? Because, you know, they're they're in the mix with, with other soldiers who are not celebrities. Yeah, I mean, this is a topic that has long been uh, debated in fandoms because every male celebrity or artist inevitably has to serve. And so there have been cases of individuals that tried to avoid service either by um, renouncing their Korean citizenship right at the age that they would have had to serve or in some other way trying to avoid military service. And they paid a very (laughs) huge price in terms of the public support of them. So that gives you a sense of of the risks that Korean celebrities face in not expressing a kind of enthusiasm to serve the nation in this way. The management company is also saying that BTS will reunite. Do you think they're fans who are so invested? (laughs) And maybe you're Mm -hmm. one too? Yes, yeah. I so, I have no concerns that they will have a an audience when they reconvene after their service. I mean, the the not only is the group probably the most beloved pop music act in the world in recent yeah. memory, but they also have so much content. Um, the company kind of doles out little bits of content at regular intervals, and I'm sure that they have a kind of back catalog that they can draw from to satisfy fans until they can come back. Um, So I have no doubt that um, fans will be waiting for them when they return. They have a message within their music that really is about, you know, friendship, also about the generational challenges that they face. And that message has really resonated with fans in across geographical space. So um, they haven't just crossed over as a hugely popular act in North America. They have tremendous popularity on every continent. And so that's, I think, what really sets them apart. Thank you very much, Michelle. Sure. Thanks for having me. From our archives, that was Professor Michelle Cho of the University of Toronto speaking with Neil last October. All seven members of BTS have now reported for mandatory military service. Birdsong serves many practical purposes. Scientists have learned that birds sing to sound an alarm, to defend their territory, to attract a mate. But they have not fully understood why they sing so much, much more than is required for any of those reasons. Especially given that if you're a bird, the decision to blast out your most powerful bars can be risky. As researcher Iris Adam explained to NPR, quote, As soon as you sing, you reveal yourself, where you are, that you even exist, where your territory is. All of that immediately is out in the open for predators, for everybody. So she and her team at the University of Southern Denmark wanted to find out why birds would take that risk, what practical purpose it would serve. But you know, some things science cannot grasp, such as the spirit that moves every creative genius, the unstoppable drive to add beauty to the world simply for the sake of beauty, even at grave risk to your own well-being. I, I believe it was Ed Sheeran. Did you, did you actually read the whole piece? Hmm? You know, where, where it explains why birds really do all of that beautiful singing? So... Not because they are artists? I mean, not not exactly. Iris Adam goes on to say, songbirds need to exercise their vocal muscles to produce top performance song. If they don't sing, they lose performance. Their vocalizations get less attractive to females. And that is bad. I guess it's kind of like vocal exercises. Red leather, yellow leather. 
Well, I, that is magical sound. People, people I, say that about me often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So birdsong is not magic. You know, except it still is because you can't have a spiritual practice mm-hmm. without practice. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.